Welcome to another edition of the Work Life Hub podcast. To find out more and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.eu. Hello, everybody. This is Agnes, your host of the Work Life Hub podcasts. And I'm super excited and very, very honored to be here today speaking with Bridget Schulte. She is an award-winning journalist, and she also wrote this amazing book. It's called Overwhelmed, How to Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. Thank you so much for being on the show, Bridget. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Agnes. So just to kick off, maybe I'll, I've, I've devoured your book. And, <laughs> and I just wanted to say to you that, um, you know, it seems to me that you started with you know, something quite localized, something quite, you know, small, which is the perception of, of never having enough time, which is something we experience on a, on a daily level. Mm-hmm. But then I think you did something really wonderful because you went out there, you scaled it up, you you went, you know, transcended borders and policies and socioeconomic statuses, and you really took, you know, to get larger, to, to see it, what it, to find the understanding of what is wrong with our system. And because I just really always have the feeling that we're just going blindly ahead when everything around us has changed because we, everything has changed, how we work, how we love, how we play. So could you just tell me a little bit, because we chatted before and you were explaining how you just really enjoyed this process of, of letting it go. So how <laughs> did that go for you? Right. Well, and I have to be perfectly honest. When I started this whole, um, this project, I really didn't know what I was going to end up with. Um, uh, you know, the, the way I've described it before is that it's really an accidental book. And it started when this time use researcher gave me this challenge. He said I had 30 hours of leisure a week. You know, and I said, you're out of your flipping mind. I think I cursed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like I was talking to him on the phone. I nearly, if he'd been there, I would have bopped him over the head with the phone or something. It's like, I do not, you know, you're crazy. And he, and he, when he'd said, yes, you do come do a time study with me uh, and I'll show you where your leisure is. You know, honestly, that's how this all started. If he had not issued that challenge, you know, uh, I, I, and then uh, an editor of mine said, go do that time study and write about it for the Washington Post magazine. I never really would have taken this journey. And, and I'm so glad that I did <laughs> because I was just feeling like a, like a crazy woman. And I was just feeling like I was all alone and everybody else had it all figured out. And I just, I was like, I just, I always felt constantly behind. I could never catch up. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I, I never kind of enjoyed the moment. So funny, I remember I was like, I was really, uh, I was struggling with depression and I was on antidepressants and I was in therapy and I was talking about like all of these moments in the past and realizing, oh, those were really, really nice moments. Why didn't I enjoy them when I was living them? And, and because I was sort of living in this fast forward and always like worried about the next thing and always like, you know, the ticker tape, yeah, the, ticker the, tape, the CNN ticker tape going, yeah. yeah. So always going in my brain. I was just always so, and so I thought I was just, you know, it was just me. I was neurotic. And, uh, you know, and, and then I wrote the magazine story. And if you read the online comics, everybody thought I was neurotic and oh, you're crazy and you're disorganized. 
but it was the personal emails that I got from people that really kind of opened my eyes. It, it shocked me. I got so many emails from people and they were personal and they were long and they were, there was so much pain in them. And people were saying, you climbed into my head and you wrote about my life. And that's what made me think, wow. Well, first of all, it kind of felt good that I wasn't alone, but then it felt really bad that I wasn't alone. <laughs> no, it's like, wow, how come we're all suffering so much? I mean, and I mean, I hate to say it because, you know, we're in, uh, you know, advanced economies and we've got, you know, not, we've got houses, we've got enough to eat. It's not like we're in the middle of a civil war or, you know, and, and we're still, there's kind of like this kind of existential suffering and this sense of pain and the sense that we're not living our lives and it's going too fast. And so when I decided to write the book, it was really because of all of that response I got. And it wasn't just from, from mothers, working mothers. It was from, you know, working mothers and stay at home mothers. It was from women with no kids. It was from men with kids and without kids. It was from young people saying, Oh my God, I don't know how to do this. I'm already busy. I can't imagine having children on top of this. Yes. And then it was, it was from older people who'd said, you know, now we're retired and I can't sit down. I can't relax. I'm always puttering around. And so it was this kind of constant. It, it was really interesting that through so many different people, this kind of thread, uh, you know, this, this sense of time pressure was, was so prevalent in all of them. So I decided, you know, that I would go ahead and write the book, but I really, I honestly didn't know what shape it would take. And I think what I was telling you before, um, you know, in, in journalism, you know, you just, for the longest time, nobody wanted to write about quote unquote women's issues. You know, I'm, I'm old enough that that was still considered kind of like a soft thing to do. I think now writing about work-life issues and women and gender, you know, it's gotten, uh, I think because some really excellent people are doing it and doing it in a smart way, it's different. But say 10 years ago, you didn't want to be caught dead on the quote unquote women's beat. And so I'd never really covered these issues. I didn't really know anything about it. I'm ashamed to say I'd never read Betty Friedan, you know, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't read any of that, but I mean, I didn't have a grounding in feminist literature or anything. I knew nothing. I was, uh, I was, uh, I'm almost ashamed of how ignorant I was. <laughs> and so I, I started this and the one thing I didn't want to do was write a mommy train wreck book. You know, I didn't want to write the book like, mm -hmm. Oh, we're all so busy. It feels terrible. And then kind of like make some sort of shrug shrugging off jokes about it. Because, you know, there are books like that out there and they're fun to read and I've read them all. And so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give any disrespect, but that's just, I really wanted to, if I was going to take this on, I wanted to understand. And I'm, you know, I think curiosity is always one of the things that's propelled me through my life. And I was, as I was explaining before, I've, I've spent most of my life as a newspaper journalist. And one of the frustrating things to me has always been, you know, no, you know, don't make that other phone call. No, we don't have time for this. Don't ask that other question. No, it's too long. Cut it in half. And, you know, you're always, um, you know, looking for kind of like, kind of really short things yeah. to say. And so for a book, it's like, it was, it was almost this, I don't know. I, my, it's like my soul finally expanded. It's like, oh, wow, nobody's telling me not to make that phone call. Wow, nobody's saying I can't ask that question. And so I just kind of followed my instincts and I kept asking and I kept digging. And 
you know, and, and because I didn't know anything, I didn't have any preconceived notions about who I should talk to or where I should go. And I, I really wanted to understand, um, not only why, you know, it's funny. I was sort of trying to figure out, well, how do I even shape this book? I don't even know how to organize it. And I met a friend of mine for coffee who had written a book and he said, Oh, and he wrote about entrepreneur. So a completely different subject. And he wrote it for a business audience. And he said, oh, I just really wanted to know two things. Why are things the way they are and how can they be better? And I like grabbed his eyes like, Larry, oh my God, can I steal that? That's excellent. <laughs> and that, you know, and so if you can see, I, I give him total credit in the book that that really became kind of my two guiding stars as I did the reporting, just really driving to try to answer those questions. Why are things the way they are and how can they be better? And really looking at science and research and stuff that's happening out there and, you know, not trying to find nirvana anywhere because we're human and, you know, there, we're filled with imperfections. But where are things that we could learn lessons from that we might be able to, um, you know, like a, like a company could, could try or a CEO might be interested in or that, you know, I myself could do, you know, so I was looking for kind of those larger structural changes um, that, you know, that could kind of give us all more ease looking at policies really looking at cultural attitudes because it's really, you can't look at one without the other. And then also on that personal level. All right. So that big social change may, may take a generation and I might not be alive. So, you know, what can I do right here, right now to make life feel different, to make it feel like I have more time and that I'm not always behind? How can I get off the sidelines and, you know, and, and that sense of pain and, uh, sadness that my life is screeching past. How can I get in the middle of it and kind of, you know, live inside my life? And, uh, and so those were sort of the two questions that I, that, that guided me. I was very surprised when I, you know, at the beginning of your book, this, this notion of we have 30 hours. I, I don't have, I have minus 30 hours <laughs> every, every, uh, every, uh, month or week. And, um, because I, I actually read now someone said that, we have now four times more choice than we used to have before. And this way we have, this is why we have seven hour less time per week because there's this choice paralysis. Oh, and I think this, you know, going from one thing to the other and this terrible multitasking of baking, you know, the cupcakes with one hand and, and scrolling on your Blackberry with the other. And then with one foot, you're kind of mopping the floor. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I think that what, what really, so I, that's what I find so uh, fascinating about your book, that you, you look at both the micro, the now, what can you do now? You know, just, you know, cut out the lists, uh, stop my, you know, you really give very um, pragmatic uh, advice for every day, mm -hmm. but then you also look at the big systemic issues of parental leaves, um, child care, elder care, all those kind of things that are really, really big. And just wanted to ask you one thing, because you, I think what's quite interesting in what you say about the impossibly high standards, mm -hmm. you know, that we set ourselves both for parenting, for as being moms or working moms, but also at work, the overwork. Are you hopeful? Do you think that despite Facebook, Instagram, this constant show off of how amazing we are. <laughs> <laughs> this, right. this, this can, we can start, uh, you know, 
you know, unzipping our true selves and post some really burnt stuff on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. I think that should be, you know, we should have a movement about that. I, I wanted to, I wanted to start a movement on Instagram, like show me how you play to try to support leisure time, but I don't Instagram all that much. So it didn't really go anywhere. And, and I think I'm okay with that because, um, I think that you've got, uh, you, you really hit on something that's really important and that's sort of authenticity. How mm -hmm. can we show up every day, our authentic selves? And how can you do that when there are so much, there is so much pressure at work, at our workplaces to always be on, always? Uh, you know, we want, we, all the talk, if you look at the business literature, it's all about efficiency and productivity and we're all about, uh, you know, making the most out of every minute. Um, you know, and I'm all for hard work, you know, listen, I'm a recovering workaholic. I've totally bought into that whole ideal worker notion for too long that the harder you work, the better you are. And I think what gives me hope on that front, the, the sense that, um, you know, that overwork is the, is the way we've certainly gone that way since the mid eighties for a number of reasons. And I think the economy is one of them. You know, uh, people are very afraid of their jobs. We've gone through downsizing. Yes. The global economy is changing things. There's so much uncertainty. And so people are desperately trying to hold on to their jobs. And the way they do that is to show, look at how dedicated I am. I'm here at 9 o'clock at night. I'm here at 11. I'm answering my emails at 3 in the morning. So I think that some of this overwork is fueled by this panic and, and very understandably, you know, we've been through, uh, you know, the financial, global financial crisis was terrifying and a lot of it, a lot of people really suffered. So I think it's, you know, on the one hand, it's understandable. And on the other hand, I think it's really being exploited. Um, you know, when you look particularly yes. like at the people who don't take vacation because they don't want to, they don't want to lose their jobs. They want to be seen as committed. So I, I do think that we're at a very, you know, kind of at a dark place when it comes to overwork. But what gives me hope is all of this emerging research about what I like to call effective work. How do you really get the best work out of your, uh, out of your people, your human capital, if you will? And it is really clear. The research is, it's clear and it's robust and it's growing that, you know, working a million hours is, is a direct road to burnout that you get tired, you begin to make mistakes, it takes you two and three times longer to do stuff, you become kind of this butt in the chair where all you can do is answer emails. And so if you really want to uh, capitalize on the best of your workforce, if you really want to get, a, you know, efficient and product productive work out of, uh, you know, out of your people, but also leave space for maybe creativity and a new idea, um, the energy to work on it, then you really do need to watch the hours and the way people work. And that, uh, you know, we have these 90-minute attentiveness cycles during the day, which I think is fascinating. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. um, and so use that. And that, uh, you know, uh, and this all comes from some really interesting research on, like, uh, musicians and how the best musicians kind of lived their days and when you look at how they how they kind of like lived through the day, it looked like these kind of jagged peaks and valleys in the mountains, mountains and valleys. They would work for like a 90-minute intensive pulse, and usually first thing in the morning, they get their biggest uh, pulse done, they practice really hard, and then they take a break. 
They go for a walk or they take a nap. They actually, the best musicians napped more. They slept more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. So I think that the, the more that kind of research comes out and the more we realize that we're running people into the ground rather than getting the best work out of them, which is what businesses want, and that the way to get the best work is actually a really humane schedule, uh, you know, that we're going to get better work out of people and they're going to have time for their lives, which I find really hopeful. And there are some really interesting companies out there that are paying attention to that. And not just kind of cool st small startups, but like the financial services industry is really looking into stuff like that. Um, you know, there were there's great studies that have been done, um, you know, like at the... Uh, Leslie Perlow's done some really great looking at, you know, when you give uh, people a team, you know, you work within a team and you give people, uh, you know, alternating people are on call. So you know that you're going to be the one, like if there's something that explodes, you know, somewhere, yeah. you're going to be the one on call that night. But then you have the rest of the week off because everybody's taking a turn. And just having that mental space away from work makes everybody so much more, you know, it, it connects them more. There's more cohesiveness. There's better communication. People come to work in the morning and they're more refreshed because if you're always on that technology, you're kind of jet lagged. And I mean, listen, it's, but it's addictive. It's seductive. I, I fall into bad habits all the time and I can feel it in myself. You know, it's like when I'm kind of dragging and then the first thing I do is check email and then I'm kind of down the rabbit hole and, you know, I, I'm ashamed to say I still have stupid days, but on the days that I don't, boy, I get so much more done. Um, but technology is a real challenge. And I, I think what gives me hope there, and believe me, I'm still struggling with it. So it's not like I've figured it all out. You know, it's just my email inbox. Sometimes you just want to lay down and go to sleep. It's like, oh my God, there's oh, I so hate many emails. emails. I hate email. <laughs> It's like you love it and you hate it because it's a great way to communicate with people. It's awesome. It's it's connected us in ways that we could never have imagined before. So it's it's a really powerful tool and it is also overused and we don't use it well. So I think what I'm hoping is that as we continue to use technology, as technology gets better, we'll also get smarter about how to use it. Because I think that we're just getting run over by it because it's new. We don't know how to use it. I mean, it's really clear technology. Every time you get a little ding, a little notification, you get this squirt of dopamine in your brain. And it's like it, it works on the same uh, brain structure, the basal ganglia, as addiction. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's the other thing we have to be aware of and kind of come up with systems. Uh, you know, there's great research that shows if you, if you check your email at very specific times and, and if you can, you know, bound it to like three or five times a day, you're actually happier. So I think that there's really something to that. But you know what? That's a skill to learn and to keep practicing. So like I said, I'm practicing that, but uh, I'm still practicing. <laughs> but as I heard someone say it, it was so funny when they said that even though we have all these beeps and blips on our mobiles or vibrations to, sh to say to us that, you know, um, that there's a call or there's a, a text message, we still keep kind of looking at it, you know? Yeah. And as if, as if you would just go and randomly open your front door to <laughs> see if someone was standing in front of it, <laughs> even though they could ring the bell. And, and also someone said that now there's a new disorder, which is phantom vibration. 
Oh, when right. people experience the sensation of a phone vibrating in their pockets, even when they don't have their phone in their pockets. Oh, wow. That's so funny. I mean, so we're I, just changed. Yeah. Well, I've heard it described and I think brilliantly as like being uh, kind of like always on alert, vigilant, like a yes. collie dog. You know, you're like, yeah. it's it's almost like that fight or flight that, you know, um, stress system that's always on alert. You're always kind of like looking out for the next thing. What's that's coming? It. What's coming? What's coming? And so you're always in that kind of hyper vigilant state and you can't just sort of be, be where you are and be in that moment or fully engage in what you're doing, whether it's work or home or, or even play. So yeah, I think that um, we have a long way to go in figuring out how to use technology and not let it use us. I think that we are all kind of stuck in that uh, cycle of letting it use us. I, I don't know of anybody who's got it really figured out. And, um, you know, if they do, I think they're lying. <laughs> but I just wonder, I mean, one, one, there's one sentence in your book that really struck a chord when you quote, and it's in the Cult of Intensive Motherhood chapter, when you mm. quote uh, Karen Graff, she says, in an unpredictable world, no one knows the formula for success anymore. And that, yeah. you know, it refers to education, it's child rearing, so early childhood and parenting, but also your own career, your own career choice. But I wonder, you know, now maybe we're starting to figure out email and and all of that, but then will come the Google Glass and then the new thing. So mm -hmm. how do we really keep... And, and you have kids, so I'm sure you have seen Wally -E like a thousand times, you know, the, the, I think it's Pixar or Disney when there's the little robot and then he's the only one remains on earth. And then right. all the humans are in that spaceship, like big blobs, just right. sitting in armchairs, you know, with a screen, a personalized screen. In front. And sometimes I think, is that, is that where we're going? Is that what's going to happen to us? And so I, I think that how, how do you how do you see that will, will policies uh, start intervening in this? Will workplaces wake up and intervene in this? Well, you know that it's so funny that you mentioned that. That is a terrifying vision of the future, isn't it? Sort of everybody in their own little individual world, sitting on these kind of floating chairs huge and fat, you know, they don't know how to talk to each other and kind of like always on the screen, you know, chatting or being entertained and kind of doing nothing themselves. And, uh, and believe me, it's so funny that you say that I did take a picture of my family at uh, the, the swimming pool on Father's Day. And I was like, come on, you people. And my husband's checking his cell phone <laughs> for email, my daughter on her phone, like, I don't know, doing something on looking up videos or Snapchat or something like that. So I took a picture of them. So I'm even on my phone, sort of like, this is terrible. Put these phones down. Let's talk to each other. So um, so I do think that the propensity is there to kind of like lose contact. And those screens, like we said, we were saying, they're, they're, they're fun. They're entertaining. They pull you in. They kind of suck you in. Uh, and our brains, it's like we can't help it, you know, with that dopamine squirt of reward. We want more and more and more. Um, and so I think it's, it's really, um, about finding alternatives that, uh, you know, that are, are, that are simple and yet very powerful, which is human connection, you know, and, and I think that you get that by kind of setting up rules, you know, so family dinner, nobody brings a phone to the table and maybe nobody knows what to talk about for a while until you kind of get used to each other again. Yeah. But it's about kind of creating rituals and creating habits 
where you will connect with other people and the phones are, they're not even, you know, anywhere nearby. Um, and, and I think that that's tough. I've got, my kids are 14 and 16 and they're, it's almost like these phones are extensions of their, of their hands. You know, you're right. Yeah. You got Google Glass and Apple Watch and, you know, you almost wonder, like, when is the chip coming that will just be exactly. embedded in your, in your body? Yeah. And I think that, you know, again, with, you know, as technology advances, as we use it more and more, you know, I, I hope that we won't forget, uh, you know, how to use it in a way that, that furthers connection rather than isolates us more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that we'll learn that there's time to use it and there's time to put it away and really connect face to face. Now, Maybe just uh, going back a little bit to what uh, we at the Work Life Hub are quite interested ab- about is is the policy and the mm-hmm. you know what kind of services are there is there childcare or summer care and and daycare all kinds of services but also policies of leaves and flexible mm-hmm. working hours um, I'm just quite curious um, do you think uh, this new the the elections your elections upcoming elections in the United States is that going to be a bit of a game changer I mean we hear a lot from Hillary's campaign of working families working families that seems to be coming more and more to the front do you do you think that this is going to be some of the deciding factors you know, it's that's a really interesting question, and it might be too early to say. Um, we do hear that coming out of uh, out of Hillary's camp, which is interesting because it wasn't that long ago when she said, um, you know, paid leave. It's just not going to happen. The time's not right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now she's now she's talking about it. Um, you know, in the past year, you have the um, Obama administration, and particularly the Department of Labor really taking it on and hosting a work, uh, working family summit. Um, uh, and, you know, Secretary Perez going around the country and sort of stumping, if you will, for paid parental leave. Um, so you do see it, you do see policy, at least paid parental leave being talked about on a national level in a way that it never has been. Mm-hmm. Um, you do see, um, there, there've been these kind of, um, successes, if you will, or pushes on the state level. And in the United States, you know, the states have always been kind of like the labs, uh, you know, states kind of get started on things and then people see that the roof hasn't fallen in and, the, you know, the sky hasn't disappeared and like, oh, well, maybe we can look at it on the national level then. And so there are three states that have paid leave policies. California is the very first one in 2002 and the, you know, kind of the only studies that have been done show that it's either got a positive or neutral effect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's huge when you consider that so many business groups lobbied against it and said the sky would fall in and businesses would go out of business. And it hasn't happened. And it's been in effect for over a decade. I think a really interesting thing is Rhode Island. They passed their paid parental leave in one session. It's like, it's like once somebody had sort of the, you know, the courage to put it together and kind of built a coalition, everybody got on board. And, you know, I think, again, what was interesting about California, it was a group of young fathers, young uh, or uh, legislators who were fathers that were the ones that were behind pushing it through. So, again, what I find really hopeful is that these are really seen for what they are, which is which are human issues, societal issues. How do we, you know, raise the next generation kinds of issues? Whereas before they'd always been kind of shoehorned into these quote unquote mommy issues and sort of denigrated as unimportant. You know, oh, you know, just have a 
have a, go to the spa if you're so stressed out, you know, shut up and put up, you know, figure it out. It was always sort of put on a kind of a blame the woman, figure it out woman kind of, uh, track. And I think what's, what's helpful to me now is that people are seeing it's about mothers and fathers. It's about how we want to be as a society, you know, because a, a society that doesn't foster the next generation doesn't last very long, you know? Yes. Um, and I think that there's finally a recognition of that. Um, whether the next election is going to be a game changer, I mean, it's, it, it is early to say you don't know kind of what are the issues that are really going to stick. It does seem like people are talking a lot about income inequality. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting that people are taking notice of is um, just like there have been state efforts on paid parental leave, uh, states have been taking up paid sick days, which is another policy that, yes. that, you know, the United States does not have, unlike the rest of the advanced economies. And even in states, if you look at the midterm election, in, in states that sent Republicans and very conservative or even Tea Party Republicans to the House and Senate, they passed, uh, they, the, those very same voters passed local measures to in, to have paid sick days, to also have to raise the minimum wage. So I think that there's there's an understanding that these are issues go be these issues go beyond partisanship. They're really about um, you know kind of how to have a how to have a good and healthy life and a, a good and healthy society. Um, so I, I know I'm not I'm not answering your question because I don't really have a crystal ball, and I think a lot of people would hope these would be. Uh, uh, issues on the center stage, but you know, you just, you know, politics is always like, you just never know what's going to catch fire. Maybe before we, I, I just wanted to ask you one question before we go to our last question. Um, how, how do you find it now? Uh, and what are your plans now? So you've, you you wrote this book, I'm, must have been a journey. And then I, I heard you say in other interviews as well, that, that you have, learned and you have integrated quite a number of those um, those techniques or practices that you discovered there um, of, I guess, filtering and, and just focusing and the mindfulness and all of that. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, how, how does it work for you now? Where, where are you now? And then do you have other plans for another book or, or what, what, what can we expect next? What's now? What's now? Um, well, a couple things. You know, the first thing that I always say is that I'm very much a work in progress. So I am no longer where I was in chapter one, and I'm very grateful for that. I'm actually really grateful for the opportunity to have reported and researched and written this book because I do think that, that process really changed me. Um, you know, but like I say, I'm not a guru. <laughs> I'm not ready to hang out my shingle and like, give out advice or anything because, I, like I say, I still have stupid days and I still fall back into old habits. Um, I think one of the biggest things that's changed is my mindset. I now see things that I didn't see before. I see that kind of impetus to try to be this ideal worker. And I see that staying up late, you know, is going to make me tired and stupid the next day, you know, and to, and to stop. Um, I also have learned, and this has been hard, and I'm still learning it. Let me say rather than learned, I am learning that you really can't manage time. You know, we talk about time management, but what you can manage are your priorities and uh, your expectations. And that was one of the things that always got me. You know, when I would write out my daily to-do list, it would be like 75 things and I would try to do it by the end of the day. And if I didn't, then I felt terrible, you know, so it's always feeling guilty and inadequate and behind and terrible. 
And you know, when you think about it, that's all really created from your own mindset. So to, so I guess what I do that's very different is I'm, I'm just much nicer to myself. <laughs> you know, I was so awful yeah. to my, I just always felt so bad. No wonder I was like, you know, falling into depression. Um, I try to, uh, take some time. I do try to take time in the morning to just, just be still. Sometimes it's, sometimes I meditate. Sometimes I just read something kind of inspiring. Sometimes I just go around, you know, walk around the block. Sometimes it'll be a workout, but I do try to take some time to just kind of think about, okay, what's important? Uh, what's important to me today? What's important to me in my life? Um, how do I, how do I want to spend this day? And if it's at work, what, what are the big things that I really need to get done? I'm so much more efficient. I'm so much more productive. <laughs> and then I try to do that. Right. I try to do that That's first. Great. Um, sometimes I don't, I believe me, sometimes I still fall into old, bad kind of perfectionist procrastinating habits. Like I say, old habits die hard, but sometimes I'll just, I'll, I'll, re- I'll remember that. Um, and it's a good thing for a perfectionist. Like when you're procrastinating because you want it to be so perfect and you keep putting it off, Sometimes I just set the timer for 30 minutes and just like, just start, just, just dive in. And then when the 30 minutes goes, it's like your brain can do anything for 30 minutes if it knows a break is coming. And then I'll be like, oh God, and there's a break. And then I'll go get a cup of coffee or I'll take a walk. Um, and then I'll get back into it. And it just sort of like, uh, you know, that's, that helped me a lot because I've really struggled with perfectionism and procrastination my whole life. And, um, to just kind of have, to just get started, almost like exposure therapy has been really good for me. Um, so I will try to pick one thing to do and try to do that first. And, you know, and if I don't do it, then I don't beat myself up, you know. Um, and if I kind of fall off the rabbit hole, I'll try to figure out, well, okay, well, what, how could I do this tomorrow differently? I really, um, I've changed, my husband and I have really changed the way, um, we divide the labor, whereas before it was really unfair. Now it's much fairer and we talk about it more and our relationship is better. I'm not trying to be a crazy helicopter mom anymore. I'm not as, I'm not as freaked out. Uh, You know, it's true. We don't know the keys to success, but the more that I read, the more I realize how important it is for kids to figure out stuff on their own and that the, you know, the more that I was kind of meddling or helicoptering, it wasn't doing them any good. And it wasn't, you know, it was taking up a lot of my time. They need time alone. Uh, it's okay that they don't want to spend every minute with me, especially now that they're teenagers. They don't want to ever spend any time with me. Um, but, yeah. I, you know, like my son is going into his senior year in high school. And I think had I not done the research for this book, I would be spinning out of control and I'd be freaking out and I'd be making him, you know, do all sorts of crazy stuff. And I think the research that has been so compelling to me is it's when kids connect with their passions and, you know, when they go to a place where they want to be, it's the energy that you put into college or the energy that you put into anything that really makes it a, a, a great thing. It's because then when you're happy, you'll be more open to, to experiences. You'll be um, more willing to join things. And then the success will come. The achievement will come. Because you're focusing on your authentic self and your, you know, and that happiness is, I love Sean Aker. He describes it as the joy you feel as you reach for your own potential. So, you know, sometimes we think of happiness as this kind of like sitting on the couch watching TV. That's really not happiness. Happiness is like hard work, but there's a joy in that because it's, it's sort of like you're reaching for your own authenticity. And I think that's what I, that's what I try to remember for myself. That's what I try to remember in my parenting. 
And I'm also realizing that so much of the joy in life comes from those simple moments when you're all just sitting around and it just turns out that you're doing the dishes together. You know, it's not the the big, you know, it's not always the big moments. I mean, it's great to have them, but it's like finding that the beauty in those ordinary moments is what really makes life slow down and feel really precious. I I just wanted to say precious. (laughs) I just wanted to say thank you for for all these really precious thoughts and and, and a personal thank you for linking procrastination to being a perfectionist because I always just thought that I'm lazy. (laughs) (laughs) So so that, yeah, I'm going to frame it this way and I think it will have a big impact. And I just just wanted to add to what you said. I mean, there's just really fantastic thoughts and advice. So thank you for that. I just wanted to say that when very, there are very few occasions when one of my kids would come and say, I'm bored. And then I would just say, oh, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because it means that they have managed to empty, you know, there's no screen. There's, so I said, that's great because now you will go and now you will come up with something creative and great from, from yourself. You know, it's not going to be fed through uh, um, something external and, and reach deep down into yourself and, and find, as you say, a passion and interest or some driver. So that's that's really great. Um, well, now maybe coming to the last question because mm-hmm. time time I can <laughs> see it. I can see a timer here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just you know, we always ask this last question, which is if you could give one advice. Uh, to a CEO to improve the well-being of his or her employees, what would that be? But I will give you the choice, Bridget, if you would like to answer this question or would you answer the question if you could give one advice to the presidential candidates? Ah, yeah. Well, I think it would probably be the same. It would be the same for either one. Can okay. I, okay, can I do two things? <laughs> sure. Okay, because I think, you know, we talk about policy but it's so intertwined with attitude. And so what I would say um, with policy, honestly, um, I think that uh, probably the greatest thing that the, the CEO and also presidential candidates could do would be not only to ensure that parents have paid parental leave, but to ensure that fathers all had solo parental leave and that that became um, not only a policy, but a norm and an expectation. Because the research that's been done on the countries that have the kind of parental use it or lose it policy shows that three years later, you know, when the children are, um, are toddlers, that the couples where men and women have had time each on their own to kind of develop uh, their roles as parents, when they've each kind of gotten that confidence and competence they become um, much fairer sharing as partners and they're um, 70% of the couples in this one study in Iceland are fully sharing childcare three years yeah. later. And if you're fully sharing childcare, then the flip side of it is that there's more time, uh, equal time spent at the workplace. Uh, and so then you have a much fairer kind of more human uh, advancement, if you will. So if there's one policy to look at, it would be not just paid parental leave, but making sure that it's available to men and women. That would be that would be my one policy. And as far as the culture goes, I would really encourage them to, you know, we've had this kind of like 
kind of old fashioned management labor, kind of this, this kind of, um, adversarial kind of relationship to really look at, you know, humans. And, and we talk about human capital to really see that if you invest in humans, you know, that's where you're going to get your best work, your best ideas. And, you know, human beings are not robots and they need sleep and they need, uh, you know, they need to eat well and they need breaks during the day and they need, um, they need time to live their authentic lives and having meaningful work, having a purpose with their work is a part of a full life, but only a part and not all of it. And so that's what I would, I would really encourage them to not only look at ways to create cultures for their companies, but also to learn to live that themselves because so many CEOs got to where they are because they worshiped at the altar of work and they could do that because they had somebody else taking care of everything else. And I don't know how many of them feel that they have full authentic lives or if they have only work, but that's uh, CEOs can make a huge difference. And, you know, leaders can make a huge difference uh, because people are going to work like they do. They, you know, they set the tone and they will emulate it. And so you can't just say, this is our policy. You have to live it yourself. That's great. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed our discussion and, and I think it could have gone on and on <laughs> because, because we only looked at just a couple of snippets really from the work you did in your book. And, and so I encourage everybody to, to buy it and read it um, because it, it has got really something for every, everyone. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's really what I, I, I really wanted to do. I wanted to start with where I was and the kind of the, the crazy situation and how alone I felt. But then the more I researched, the more I saw how universal it was. And so um, I'm hoping everybody can find something. Um, open, open minds, open hearts, and work together to, you know, find a way to, to live a good life. Thank you. No, really great. I really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you very much, Bridget. Uh, oh, thanks so much for having me.